It's true. As soon as Bobby said I had an opportunity to come and really encourage my fantasy football team, I, uh, I thought, man, I got to get here because they're the only people that score many points. Uh, I'm so excited to be here, and it is, man, your town is amazing, the energy, and, and of course, being at this church, I, I, my first time here was with All Sons and Daughters, our worship team, and it's funny, as we were singing a couple of those songs, um, Rising Sun was, was, they were writing the song just outside my office, and I would hear them going through the chord progression and the choruses, and think, oh, that's kind of a special song, and I wonder what will happen with that song. So to be here and to, be, to hear you singing a song that was birthed in our congregation is pretty special for me. So what a, what a joy and a privilege to be with you. <clears throat> um, an author once said, the universe is not made up of atoms, but rather the universe is made up of stories. And so uh, I'd like to tell you a, a story this morning. So I, I grew up in the Middle East um, in a small town, a little town, uh, east of the Mediterranean. Uh, the town uh, later became quite famous. Uh, two kings were born there. Songs have been sung about it. Uh, I then spent most of my childhood actually not in the town, but in the fields outside of the town because I helped run the family business. I spent a lot of time alone because I was out with animals. And so, you know, when you're outside alone, spending time, you look for stuff, stuff to do. And so I quickly uh, picked up the guitar and started to, to learn how to play. <clears throat> Not only did I uh, play the guitar, but I, <clears throat> I started writing songs and um, kind of became a singer-songwriter. And while I was out there, I, I was responsible for protecting the animals. And so I, 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 there, were, there were a lot of threats. And once you do this year after year after year and you're by yourself, you've got to learn how to protect yourself, protect the animals. And... So I got pretty good with a weapon while I was out there and, and fought off lions and bears and, and pretty good. So I, you know, I, was, so I was a fighter, I was, I, I was a fighter and I was a lover. I, you know, I was writing songs and I was learning how to fight and it was a grand time. One day, uh, this old man came to my, my, my parents' house and he's kind of a Gandalf character and he, he came to the house and took his hat off and came into the house and he told my dad that he wanted to, to meet all of my dad's children. So my dad brought all the brothers out, and, and, and his name was Sam, and this old patriarch guy, Sam, is hanging out with my brothers, and he goes, yeah, this isn't like that. These, these are nice boys, but this isn't what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm, I feel like I was called by God to come to your house, and I'm, I'm meant to meet one of your sons. My dad says, oh, yeah, we do have another son. Thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. <clears throat> so I was called in from the field. I come in, and, and sure enough, Sam says, that's the boy. Me? He says, yeah, sit down right there. I sit down, and he takes a pot of oil and dumps it over my head. I don't know if you've ever had a pot of oil dumped over your head, but that was a little weird for me. <laughs> I said, is that it? He said, yes. Okay. So I went back out to be with the sheep. Well, as, you know, when you're a singer-songwriter, you're always looking for gigs. Uh, eventually, word got out that I was pretty good, and um, sure enough, they took me to the city, and I got a, I got a gig at the palace. Oh, that's not bad. That was my first gig. So I'm gigging at the palace. It's not a bad deal. So I, I'm invited to the palace, and sure enough, I'm invited to play before the king. And uh, the king's kind of jacked up. He's kind of messed up in the head. And big guy, and kind of imposing figure, very intimidating, but he's just a little messed up. And uh, so they asked me, they said, would you play for the king, just some light jazz, and uh, 
I said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, and I'm hoping to score a Pandora station, but, you know, I'm, I'm working my way up. And they said, yeah, I could do some jazz. And they said, well, just do some light jazz. He's kind of messed up in the head. So I did, and it went really well. And I would start to play, and the king would totally chill. It's a pretty good deal. But, you know, as it is, you know, if you're a singer-songwriter, you, you know, sometimes you got the skinny jeans, you're doing music, and the next thing you know, you're, you're pouring coffee. And it was kind of the same for me, only it wasn't coffee, I was back to the sheep. So I, this was my life. I was playing, gigging at the palace, back to the field with the sheep. And Anyway, one day, my, it occurs to my father that I'm alive, and um, <laughs> he invites me into the house, and he says, hey, son, I'm like, dad. He goes, yeah, your brothers are really hungry. Could you send them, go take them some food? Sure. Thanks, Dad. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, they're, of course, in, in my day, uh, you know, everybody signed up for the military. It was a big deal. And so they were, they were fighting in the military, and they were camped out. There was a big battle brewing. And so I went with food to take to my brothers. I got to the campsite, and, you know, people are, you know, they're coming around. I'm like, hey, this is food for my brothers. And they'd come after me. I'd be like, you don't want me to take out my sling. And, uh, and I was good with a sling. I was a slinger, actually, they called me in those days. And I, I've heard, you know, some people use guns and they, they shoot bullets out of guns. I, I fired rocks from slings. And, and believe it or not, a lot of people don't know this, I can fire a rock from that sling almost as fast as you could shoot a bullet from a gun. Like, I was that good. Anyway, so I get to the camp, I give my brothers the food, and sure enough, I hear this man bellowing across the valley. You hear this voice, and I, I walk up to the edge of the valley, and sure enough, there's this really large man. Some people might even call him. A giant of a man. And he's yelling, he's cursing about God and our nation. And so I'm like, is anybody going to tell Tubbo to put a sock in it? Like, what, who's, why is this happening? I don't understand. My brothers are like, no, 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 no. We don't, nobody will, no, no, just be quiet. Well, who's going to fight him? Like, why don't you guys go out and fight the guy? Oh, he's a giant. We're not going to fight him. He's not, he's like half man, half demon on a creature. It's, uh, we're not fighting him. Well, I'll fight him. Of course, David. Sure, 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 sure. You know, go take your guitar. Um, no, 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 I'll, no, I'll. So my brothers didn't want to pay attention, but I knew the kings. I'd play jazz for him. So I went to the king's tent, and of course the guards wouldn't let me in. I'm like, look, I, I don't have the skinny jeans on, but I'm the guitar, I'm the guitar guy. Oh, yeah. Can I talk to the king? Because I want to fight the guy. Sure. So the king comes out. He goes, what's your name again? I'm like, the jazz guy. Oh, yeah, 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 you're the kid. Uh, hey, I want to fight the guy because nobody else is. So the king's like, you do? Yeah. Well, you're going to need some armor. So the king brings his armor on. I put it, it doesn't work. I'm like, ah, no, that's not going to work. I'm a slinger. Let me take my sling. Okay. So sure enough, this kind of climactic moment happens, and then the large man starts walking, lumbering across the valley, and I, I just go sprinting out. And It's funny. Years later, people told me this was kind of a David and Goliath story. Um... <laughs> That I was the real underdog, but I wasn't an underdog. I had two things. Number one, I had God on my side. Number two, I was really good with a sling. And uh, so sure enough, uh, we go out there and, you know, boom, it's over. Um, I cut his head off and hold it up, and that's, it was the first head I'd cut off. It was fairly interesting, but that's what you did in my day, uh, just to make sure he was dead, I guess. And... Um, and I was, you know, he'd hold it up, and they're crazy. And the, the, and the next thing you know, I'm a kind of a hero. And sure enough, I'm, I'm not pouring coffee. I'm not watching sheep. They, they invite me into the city, and now I'm still playing music. But now the king tells me he wants to be part of the military. So I say, sure. Well, I wind up meeting the prince. 
and his name is John, Prince John, and we, and we become great friends. Like, he becomes my best friend in the world. You know, he's such a cool dude. And he's like, you know, you're pretty good, like, with your, you know, you're pretty good with the sling, and obviously, you know, you've had to fight some creatures and all that kind of thing, but you need to learn some tactics. Like, I'm going to teach you the ways of the military. So John starts teaching me all this, like, he knows, he, he's in the palace. So he's got all, like, the secret training manuals for the Navy SEALs and all this. He teaches me all the stuff. So I'm learning all this tactical stuff, and next thing you know, I'm going out with John, and we're going into battles, and we are, like, we're mopping up. Like, we, we're killing people, and I'm writing songs. And it's really a lovely time. <laughs> but come to find out, the king, he's really, he gets really jealous of me. I'm like, you don't have to be jealous. I'm totally loyal. He's like, no, I'm really jealous. And so next thing you know, he's putting me on missions on purpose, hoping that I will die. But I don't die. I come back having killed more people. And then I walk into the streets and women are writing songs about I've killed, the king has killed thousands of people and I've killed 10,000s of people. I'm like, this is a great song. I might have to add this to my playlist. Uh, I mean, this is nice. This is a great deal. And, uh, it, but it, it just goes south quickly. And I, I say to John, I said, I think your dad's out to kill me. He said, why? I said, well, I was playing jazz and he took a spear and he threw it at me. Have you ever played the guitar and had someone throw a spear at you? He's like, what? I'm like, it happened. Sure enough, a couple weeks later, I'm playing the light jazz, trying to help him chill out. He throws the spear at me again. Like, your dad needs anger management. Like, this is problematic. Finally, it took a while to convince John, but I told him, this, I don't think this is going to work. So Jonathan and I have a long talk one day, and Jonathan's starting to put some things together, the oil over my head when I was a kid by Sam and all this stuff. And so John says, you know, I... I I think you're going to be the next king. Like, I know that, that's kind of the word. And Jonathan says, you know what? I'm not jealous of you, like my dad. And even though I'm the prince and the heir to the throne, uh, I think it's going to be you. So would you make a promise with me? We call it a covenant. He said, would you not kill off all my heirs? Make sure that there's a son of mine who remains and that he inherits what would be rightfully mine. I said, Jonathan, I think you're crazy. I don't know how this is all going to play out, but absolutely, I promise you. So I did. I made a promise to Jonathan that day. And it wasn't too long after that that the king and Jonathan were in a battle and both died together, and the nation found me and made me king. And uh, I continued to go to battle, and, and we continued to win. I protected our country, and we, we accumulated more land and great wealth, and uh, I mean, it was really a festive time. I had, I had all these friends. We'd fought together, 30 guys in particular. We fought together for years and years and years. Um, it was really beautiful. But, you know, when you're the king and you're living in the palace, it's, things start going good. It, you know, it's easy to start getting lazy. I don't know if you've noticed that about life, but when things are hard, you, you just stay a little sharper. When things are easy, sometimes you... Kick back a little too much. Well, it was the time when kings went off to war, and I didn't go off to war. My men went without me. And I lived in a palace, and, um, and the palace was set up on a mountain, and, and our mountain, uh, for defense purposes, had a wall on it, and the wall was right on the edge of a, a cliff that dropped down into a valley, and then on the other side of the valley was another, another cliff area where more houses were built. It was pretty easy for me when I walked out on the palace to look out and see all kinds of homes. 
Well, most of the men had gone off to war, and so the women felt a little bit more free, and one of the ladies was out bathing, and I saw her. And I was consumed with lust for her. And I brought her into the palace and had an affair with her, and she got pregnant. Rather than repent, acknowledge my sin, I uh, tried to cover it up by a bunch of different things. But one of the things that happened was one of my closest friends, one of those 30 I talked about, warrior. So many times we were back to back on the battlefield protecting each other. I saved his life, he saved mine. But it was his wife that I slept with. I, I didn't know how else to cover it up, but to, but to get rid of him. I had pretty good modeling from the king before me. So I sent him off to battle hoping he would die, only I was successful. We put him on the front line and I murdered him. Uh, I was the king. I deeply loved God, passionately. I've written hundreds and hundreds of songs about my love for God, but I got lost, broken. One day, kind of a spiritual advisor who lived nearby, his name was Nate, he came to the palace and he's a pretty good storyteller and he, he came to me and he said, can I tell you a story? And I, I, was, I was in my funk, I mean, it's completely almost shut down, but I was like, yeah, what? And he said, well, there, there are these two shepherds, which kind of, I know what it's like to be a shepherd, so I, it kind of perked me up. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. He says, two shepherds, but the one shepherd, he, he only has one lamb. He just, it's only got one lamb and actually, the lamb has just kind of become a family friend. Like, the kids love him. They, I mean, they sleep with him. And, I mean, he just, he, the family just, it's just one lamb. He's kind of, he's got a nickname. He's just part of the family. And this other shepherd, he's got thousands of sheep. He's very successful. Well, he had a friend come over, and, uh, you know, hospitality, you, you slaughter a lamb for a meal. He snuck over to the other man's house, and he stole the only lamb they had, and he slaughtered the lamb. And fed it to the guest. When Nathan told me this story, I leaped out of my chair and I was like, who is that man? I will kill him. God is my witness. And Nathan looked at me and pointed his finger back and said, thou art the man. That was a devastating day for me. As I'm sharing my story, there are moments that you know, that moment that Samuel came to my house, my friendship with Jonathan, there were key moments that altered the trajectory of my life, but this was one of them. And it broke me. And for the first time in a long time, I fell to my knees. I was crushed by my sin. I, I confessed. I repented. I remember laying half naked on the floor the dust all up and down the front of my body because I was just laying there on my face, praying. And I felt like the Spirit came over me and God forgave me and the Spirit somehow allowed grace to pour out upon me and I got up and I grabbed a pen and paper and I wrote, create in me a clean heart, oh God. There were some real consequences to my sin. 
my family was never right. Several of my sons were murdered. There was open rebellion, betrayal, deceit. I struggled as a dad. But one of my boys, he's really, really smart. Kind of a wise guy, if you know what I mean. Well, I handed the kingdom over to him. And somehow, in the midst of my brokenness and my shame, my failure, the consequences around me, God showed his grace. And my story has been redeemed. If you haven't put it together yet, that's actually not my story. <laughs> it's a story of a man in the Bible named David. And God poured out grace upon David. I have a message for you today. God doesn't delete your story. He redeems it. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. I don't even get it. I couldn't explain how. There's a great mystery to the love of God, but I know this. The great and merciful surprise is that we get to heaven. We wind up in a relationship with God, not because we got it right, but because we got it wrong. See, that's the nature of grace. That God extends this love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. In that while we were broken, he reaches out. You say, well, that seems too easy. Like, don't people abuse grace? Yeah, I did. David did. But then, how can God keep offering it? Because his grace is even bigger than our choice. It's bigger than our behaviors. God just keeps extending grace. As a matter of fact, here, today, at this moment, God's arms are outstretched, by the way, he had them nailed there, to say, in a very vulnerable position, I still love you. And I'm initiating a relationship with you if you'd like it. Another image we get from Revelation 3.20 is that God stands at the door and knocks. He is a gentleman. He does not kick in the door. But he offers an invitation to know him. You know, the hardest thing I think about this grace thing is that we have to be receptive. Christmas is coming and there will be some gift exchange and some of you are really good at giving gifts. You love to give gifts. You like to see the reaction and that sort of thing. Some of you are not good at receiving gifts. It's Christmas, so you kind of get around it and you're like, you know, okay, I know there's gift exchange, so you get a little bit better at Christmas time. But even then, sometimes you're even wondering, I wonder how much they paid for that. I'm like, I should pay a little bit more to match their amount. And you're doing this thing that's going on in your head. Some of you are just lousy receivers. Somebody wants to do something for you. No, 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 no. We don't, a lot of us don't handle receiving well. You want to know why? Because it's vulnerable to receive. To receive implies that I'm in need. And yet that's how God's designed us. He says, on your best day, you're not good enough for me. And on your worst day, you're not farther from my reach. 
The God of the universe has invited you into his story. God has a story. And the story doesn't stop with him. We're included. Each one of you is an endangered species. It's true. You're on the list. I checked it out. I googled right before I walked in. You're on the list. There is no other human being with your story like you on the planet. Nobody. Ephesians 1, Psalm 139, Ephesians 2.10, all these verses say the same thing. Before the foundation of the earth, while you were in your mother's womb, God has formed you, created you in a workmanship into his design, things he prepared in advance for you to do. There's a design upon your life. Did you know that? You've been invited into his story to be a co-creator, a co-restorer, and a co-redeemer. You're meant, you're designed to help bring restoration to the planet. And by restoration, it's the big picture of restoration, but the, the overarching piece of restoration, if you went all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is that there was a day where we walked in unending companionship with God that was broken. And sin has been destroying the world. Jesus came back. He's saying, I'm bringing the kingdom with me. And now, if you'll join me, I've got a term for this. It's called the church. And I've got a counselor and a guide who's gonna help you as you go. It's called the spirit. And if you'll trust in me, the spirit in the context of the church is going to help restore the planet and bring it back to, all the way in the beginning, this unending companionship with God. You and I have been invited to be a part of that story. You know, maybe the best definition for sin, you know, when we do something wrong and there's a moral failure and we feel gross about our sin or convicted and we know we need to do something and confess it, all that's a part of sin. But you know, maybe another Certainly, it's a biblical definition of sin. Paul talks about it. It's missing the mark. It's not living up to the full potential. It's not living according to our design. So when you're distracted by your own shame, you're locked up in your own regret, you're no longer living out the design, co-restoring, and that might be the greater sin than being afraid of failing again. Did you catch that? Sometimes when we're stuck and completely inactive, afraid, if I step forward, I'm going to hurt somebody again. If I step forward, I'm going to fall again. You will hurt somebody again, and you will fall again. God knows this about us. Yes, we're striving toward living in the kingdom, but we'll never be able to work it out perfectly. Somehow, we are both sinner and saint at the same time. Do you ever get the feeling sometimes in church, you ever go, I like, I want to be the person who's walking in the spirit. I want to be the person connected to the kingdom. I want to be the person living for Jesus. And I want to be like that, like 24-7, and that's going to be me. And I want to be free from all those entanglements. And I'm going to live for God, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to, it's going to be like this forever. And it is until Monday. <laughs> and you're like, what happened to all that? Have you ever had that experience? And then, and then by like Tuesday, you're like, wow, screw the whole thing. I mean, I can't do this. <laughs> Might as well just stay in the sin thing. Well, Sunday, hopefully, I'll feel bad about it, and I'll get back down track again. It's crazy how sometimes in the church, we, we, because that's that dualistic thinking in our minds, like we're either one or the other. But what if there's a moment where you walk out today, and you hold the door for somebody, and you smile at someone, and it's so kingdom just an act of kindness and love. And then you get to your car door and you slam your finger in the door and you have an exclamation. <laughs> and you went from spirit to flesh in seconds. 
And you got in the car and you said, oh, sorry, kids. We use different language in our family. <laughs> I confess my sin. Honey, would you drive? <laughs> and you're back in the kingdom again. Like, I think this is how our stories play out. I think this is how the kingdom is lived. And sometimes we buy into a lie that it's either one or the other. We are constantly moved, broken people between, between the, in, under the grace of God living from flesh and spirit. And if we can embrace that and understand that what gets us aligned is that, that sense of confession and repentance. Repentance is just a turn. It's just a speaking out, uh, this isn't working, I'm broken, I'm sorry. Okay, back in the kingdom again. But some of you, the term I'm sorry, you're like, oh, I forgot what those words are. Like you, you, the last time you used the phrase I'm sorry was when you were like in eighth grade. Because I'm sorry is a vulnerable thing to say. To look at your spouse and go, you know what, I'm sorry. You're like, you don't understand. If I say I'm sorry, she's going to crush me with those words, and I'm going to hear about it. Or you go, if I say I'm sorry, she might actually pass out, and I don't want my wife to pass out. I, uh... <laughs> A lot of times we're afraid to walk in vulnerability, and we stay protected, but as a result, we stay in the flesh when we don't live in the spirit. Remember what I told you on the front end? God doesn't delete your story. He redeems it. What if you were to live your life as David did? He had moments of brokenness. And some of them were extended seasons of brokenness. But what do we discover from all his songwriting? Aren't you glad that he kept a journal? I mean, he did. We got a playlist, stuck an iTunes playlist, stuck right here in the middle of the Bible. David wrote his songs for us. And you know, you, when you read the Psalms, sometimes David's working it out through the song. Have you ever noticed that, by the way? In the Psalms, he's like, God, you've forgotten me. Why do you treat me like this? And then by the end of the Psalm, he's like, you know, but I trust you and I love you. And he's working it out. And like, that's the perfect example of it. There's somebody who's working it out, figuring out what does it mean to follow God. But what, the thing I'm so impressed with with David, and I think he's an example for all of us, is that you see in David a posture of the heart. Some of us get so lost in what we think we're supposed to do from a moral behavior place that we forget about our heart. Because a lot of times when we go, like some of you are here today, and you go, I'm stuck. I feel stuck. When I was, when I was here with you with All Sons and Daughters, I told you I was working on this book it talks about how, what happened, how do I get unstuck? And I tell the story, my wife is with me, Angie's here. I tell the story, Angie and I, how in the midst of uh, planting a church, our marriage was spiraling downhill. And we're going, we have a marriage that's disintegrating. We have four children. Well, what in the world are we going to do? And, and I tell the story in the book of how, how Angie and I went through that. I had to discover the things that we each were struggling with. And how God could redeem those and pull those out and work, and thankfully on the other side of being redeemed through that story. It's also a story of those who've been beaten up by religion and have found grace. And it's also a story of those who are stuck. And the book is written to go, how, what, what do I do when I'm stuck? Some of you are here today and you go stuck. Yeah, that's me. I, I, I feel stuck in my job. I feel stuck in my marriage. I feel stuck in my relationships. I feel stuck with God. Just, there's just a lack of connection. And what do I do? The first step to getting unstuck is you cannot heal what you don't acknowledge. You have to acknowledge it. I need help. 
Something's not right. And I think we have a tendency sometimes to gloss over the heart issue and just work on the behavior. You go, ah, you know, I, you know what my problem is? I need to pray more. And so you try and pray more. The only thing is you don't have ADD until you pray. And then you start praying. You're like, oh, I forgot about the kids. Somebody pick up the kids. And I'm, okay, I got to stop at the store and get some bread. Oh, yeah, dear Lord, uh, thank you for my mother. I haven't called my mother in weeks. I should probably call my mother. Uh, sorry. Lord, I, would you do the bills? And I, I didn't do the bills. Who's going to do the bills? Lord, I'll get back to you about the bills. I, I got to go do the bills. We don't have any money for the bills. God, we don't have any money for the bills. Uh, Speaking of the Bills, I think they're playing the Packers uh, in a couple of weeks. And have I, have I devoed that? Does anybody know if we've recorded that? Because we're going to be... Co- oh, uh, anyway, God. I mean, uh, do you, anybody pray like that? Oh, there's a couple of you. Like me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jamie. I have trouble praying. And, and sometimes this happens in the Word. You get to the Word and you're like, I don't understand what in the world they're talking about. Leviticus is talking about mold. Honey, do we have mold? Hot, like, and, and I, sometimes I think, like, we think, oh, I'm stuck. I've got to get right with God and I, I need a new spiritual practice. And, and we do. We do need spiritual practice. There's no question we won't remain strong without them. But the opening question, I think, is when you're stuck and you go, I just feel disconnected, is first and foremost a heart issue. What is the posture, and this is a great phrase, what is the posture of your heart? Is it humble? Is it receiving? Is it saying, God, I'm in need? Heal me. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And my story means something. Here's the thing about David. David doesn't see his story as one of shame, but one of revelation. What if that were true about your story? Because some of you are like, oh, my story's kind of dull and boring and there's not much to it. And some of you are like, well, my story make the hair stand up in the back of your head. Like, I, you don't understand. When it came time to plant Journey, Angie and I, we said, you know what? What if we planted our church one relationship at a time? Well, that would mean we'd need to sit with people and listen to their stories. And back in those, this is about 10 years ago, I wasn't good at listening in general. I, I read a lot of stuff on leadership and motivation, and so I was like, well, let's cast the vision and let's fire people up and maybe we can motivate them. And, and God really just put me through this thing to understand what does it mean to actually sit and listen? Stop speaking. Don't talk so much. Just listen to people. And I, I grew up in kind of a faith background where Jesus, there was a lot of selling of Jesus. People were really, there was a lot of kind of, again, a lot of uh, motivational fervor about finding Jesus. And you know, here's the thing I've discovered about God, is you don't have to sell Jesus, he's compelling enough on his own. If you live Jesus, people will scratch their heads and go, uh, what is it, what is it about you? Why did you say that? Like, what's, what's the secret? What's in your life? What's that peace? What's that hope? Why are you loving? Why are you kind? Why do you forgive? Why did you say you're sorry? Well, it's because I've learned a lot from this person named Jesus. When we planted the church, we just started to listen to people's stories. And over the last 10 years, we've continued. And you know, we've discovered something along the way. Most people have never told their story in a narrative form. Like from the beginning to end. 
I'm shocked how many people have never told their story from the beginning. To, and people say to me, I'll sit with them and I'll say, hey man, I'd love to hear your story. And they go, well, what do you want to hear? And I'll say, well, tell us, start with where you're born. And, and what were the key moments where something altered the trajectory of your life? Like when did, when did the direction of your life change? Take me through childhood and adolescence and your marriage and single, being a single. Like tell me what, just tell me your story. I've discovered something about stories. When you hear people's stories, it changes the way you see them. It changes the way you value them. Some of you, maybe you've been in a small group thing or maybe at the office, whatever else, and there's one person in particular who drives you crazy. Maybe it's their personality, maybe it's their cultural background, whatever, but they are so obnoxious, and you can't handle them. And you get in the car with your spouse, and you're like, oh, honey, if that guy says one more time, I'd, can I punch him in the mouth? No, sweetheart, I don't think you might break your nails. Okay, but I just, he drives me crazy. I don't want to, uh, you know, they're that one person that just gets all over you, and maybe they're in your family. And You know, here's the crazy thing. If you'll actually take time, and you say, hey, Would you, would you tell me your story? You know what you're going to discover? Something about that personality quirk or whatever, you're going to probably find out where it came from. And when you hear them tell the story about how as a child they were abandoned by their father, or how as a child they had an overbearing mother, or they were betrayed, hurt, wounded, neglected, you start to see them with different eyes. And you'll find a different level of empathy rise within you. And when you hear the phrase, can you see them the way Jesus sees them, I think you, when you hear someone's story, you start to see them with Jesus' eyes. Because their story is as significant as yours, as significant, significant as David's. God makes all things beautiful in his time. If you're here today and you go, I gotta tell you there's a failure in my life and it's hard for me to forget it and it keeps coming up and I feel the shame and I get locked up. Brene Brown differentiates between guilt and shame this way. She says, guilt is a behavior that doesn't really define me. You go, you know what, I don't like that. that. I did that thing, but that's not who I am, so I want to change that. It's a healthy motivation to change through guilt. But she says, shame changes your identity. It says, I'm stupid. I'm an adulterer. I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm dumb. I'm no good. That, and you know what, all of those are lies from the villain who is in your story, who hates you and who hates me. Because the villain wants to reframe who you are. You've been created as a child of God with grace poured out upon you and the creator of the universe standing this close with his arms extended saying, I, like, I'm just here in this moment regardless of the brokenness. I want to hug you. I want to bring you back into the fold. I want to shepherd you and I want to get you back on the right track again. I want you unstuck. Why? Because I have a design that's supposed to be in your life. Why? Because we're, I'm, I'm restoring the planet, and I want you to be involved. But you're back there. 
listening to lies about shame. That's your, not your identity. You're my child. I died for that. Please don't devalue the cross by waving the flag of your shame. I came back to life to prove to you I can beat it. I can conquer it. You mean the world to me. And today, this moment, this Sunday in November, God is saying, I haven't gone anywhere. I'd like to take your story and keep making it beautiful. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I want to read a passage over you. It's a psalm. This is what David said when he was stuck. Listen to these words. Psalm 32, when I kept it all inside, my bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The pressure never let up. All the juices of my life dried up. But then I let it all out. I said, I'll make a clean breast of my failures to God. I will confess my sin. And suddenly, the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved, and my sin disappeared. God, I pray that this morning, for anyone here that's stuck, oh, Father, I ask that you would remind them that they are deeply and passionately loved by you, that they don't have to stay there, that repenting is just reorienting, God, I pray that they would find someone who they could tell their story to. Father, I ask that you would lead someone into their life, that they would take the initiative and ask someone about their story, maybe even a mom or dad, maybe a spouse for the first time to sit down and say, tell me your story. Because there is always redemption and brokenness in the kingdom of God. Father, would you give them hope, draw them close to you, remind them that there is so much more. Thank you for that grace. We love you. In Jesus' name.